With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're listening to the Tennis.com podcast, and here's your host, Ed McGrogan. This is, once again, the Tennis.com podcast, a uh, reunion podcast definitely for me and Steve, uh, a long time coming, way too many solo efforts on the show uh, during Wimbledon, although I thought it worked out pretty well. Like I said, probably bring those back during the Open, but in the meantime, Steve, welcome back. How has your summer been? It's been good. I've, Wimbledon was was a good, you know, a good two weeks, and I just got back from vacation, so so it, you know, it's been good playing tennis as well. What have uh, what have you what have you been reading? Actually, I know you're a very well read man. I I thought it would be a good, actually, good point because I just finished a. Um, a great memoir, J.R. Moeringer's Tender Bar, and he wrote, um, you know, he ghost wrote really Agassiz's autobiography, Open. I read that on a vacation of my own last week, and um, I figure you usually have something paperback or hardcover in tow. So, any, anything, any recommendations did from you? you? Read, um, did you read Agassiz's book? Yes, I read that first before, and then, yeah, that's how I got to. You know, realize who who Moringer was. I, I love both of them. Yeah, I thought that I thought Agassiz's book was good. One of the, you know the probably the best of the of the ghost written autobiographies. I mean, one of the things I was reading, I've been reading this week an interesting book. It's a tennis book. In fact, it's about it's about um, Arthur Ashe's coach, Robert Johnson, Robert Walter Johnson, called Whirlwind. Just a whole history of. Um, of black tennis history that people may not know that's never really been talked about widely you know when we talk about tennis history uh, sort of like the Negro Leagues in baseball there's this whole you know other tennis history that really hasn't been promoted that well about tennis but these you know these the players sound fascinating the whole scene sounds sounds fascinating so that's been that's been a fun thing to read um, you know the last week or so yeah and I know I I've, I know we have some things in store for that, but and and one of the reasons is uh, is that the American Tennis Association actually this year is its 100th year, um, and that's you know a thing definitely worth celebrating too. Yeah, it started in 1916, so they'll be they'll have celebrations for that next year, and they're you know they're trying to build a permanent home the same way the USDA has plans for one in, in Florida as well. Right. Um, yeah, and you know, like I said, the the uh, the vacations wrapped up last week. Although you could be forgiven, I think it's tough with the with the tennis calendar. It it feels you know it does feel as as one of you know the slower weeks of the year. But then and and that goes for last week as well. Uh, but when you do just take a you know when you dig in and look and there's five tournaments, six tournaments, um, you know none of none of 
of great um, value points wise or necessarily even prize money wise but you know there are so many players of course who uh, who the second week of Wimbledon is not is not in the cards for them and you know we see a lot of those players come roaring out as soon as you know the last ball was hit on grass and as you say in you know in your piece that looked over all the events this week I mean it's almost fitting that it's on pretty much every type of court all over the world and we get this sort of sort of a season that isn't really one it's kind of a mishmash but there's a lot of tennis still going on yeah I think that the schedulers the tennis schedule wanted to you know, give the top players a break after Wimbledon and before the U.S. Open series. So that that um, that period between those has gotten longer over the years before the U.S. Open series gets started. So that's had this allowed this sort of opportunity for a little clay season in Europe for all the other players um, who might not, you know, like you said, didn't make the second week of Wimbledon or or need the points, need the money. Uh, but yeah, it doesn't. You know, it's, this is one of those weeks when you realize how how much tennis there is, and even though this series, this season, little season, doesn't lead lead to anything really. It's really just the tournaments being played for the for the sake of playing. There's still six of them. There's still a million and a half dollars in Hamburg, which used to be a big tournament. And I guess the one thing, you know, the one thing that's sort of driving interest there, you know, is is Rafael Nadal is playing that tournament so right. there's something there's something there looking ahead a story sort of developing developing there and also the US Open series gets started in Atlanta so you've got a little a look ahead there as well yeah and you know the Rafa, the Rafa part certainly was the you know the the thing we in, in yourself I mean in the piece you know really kind of hit on first and foremost and for good obvious reason really and and Rafa's career has been so interesting in that um, I think back when he started out in 2005, it seemed like he was he there was not a single event that he wouldn't play that that ranged from small clay events to the big ones to everything in between. Um, as Rafa became more established, his schedule was pared down accordingly to really you know peak for those you know, the times of the year when he wanted to play his best and he was really having a schedule that mirrored Federer and other, you know, of the top 10 players that, you know, they don't have to play every week. They have that luxury of points cushions and money is no object. And in recent years, you know, you see Rafa now playing not only events, you know, like this to really get some more match play. That's, in the end, that's what I think what this comes down to is just he... You know, he's healthy, but he needs matches, plain and simple. And, you know, also earlier in the year, I mean, he's actually gone and played South America in February the past couple of years now. And it's, a, it's an, you know, another, I think, evidence of another stage in Rafa's career where he is. Yeah, he's gone, you know, he's, he's using his clay, his clay skills, his clay sort of base more, you know, going to South America, now going to Hamburg, you know, a friendly, obviously a friendly surface for him. He needs matches. He also wants ranking points because he's down around, you know, on the bottom end of the top ten now. Um, but I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think he wants to. Seems like he really wants to iron out the parts of his game that haven't been working. The, the forehand, especially, obviously, his big shot. And you know, we'll see what he does this week. He played. He beat Fernando Verdasco yesterday in three sets, which is a, a good win. He lost to him in Miami. I didn't think 
Nadal was, I think, I felt like he had some of the same problems. He was on the defensive a lot. His forehand sort of came and went. I almost felt like you could see Verdasco's is, was, you know, was better when he hit it well. Uh, so I think, you know, watching Rafa in that much, I felt like there's there's a reason he's there. There's a lot of work to do. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned Atlanta too as an as an event this week, and I think that's you know of interest more so uh, for us because plain and simple, it it gets additional television exposure, and that's half the battle with. Even though you know nowadays it's not hard to track down even more far flung events, you know when. When when a U.S. Open Series event has the backing of an ESPN, and you know all of this is obviously tied to the deals that bring in the U.S. Open themselves, these kind of trail along as part and parcel with everything. But they you know they do pick up you know greater exposure with that um, nonetheless. And you know to me it's you don't even have to look at the draw to to tell who's going to be in it. It's it's usually the same cast of characters every year. It's loaded with Americans, of course. But, you know, for it, I think of this year and of recent years, that's actually a little more interesting than it's been in the past because um, you, know, you, you have someone like a Jack Sock who we're trying to kind of figure out where you know how do we end up what is it what is his year this year end up turning out to be because um, we've had a lot of talk about him for a little while now and you, you know you go down the list you want to see what a what a Tiafo does on the top stage he, he loses round one you want to see you know just more of these guys that you're going to hear about for their first round second round match in Flushing Meadows and you can expect them to pretty much be done after that but in these smaller tournaments you know they have a chance to kind of make some inroads yeah this is a chance to see you know the Americans in a main draw ATP tournament Tiafo he Took Sam Groth to a tiebreaker in the first set. That's not bad for a for a teenager. Marty Fish is going to retire at the U.S. Open. He started. He lost to Duty Sala, but but he'll be a, obviously be a story to follow for the rest of the rest of this summer. Just his his whole career story is is of interest. And and like you said, Jack Sock. Where where does he go? This should be really the prime part of his season. And John Isner, who seemed to you know, he seemed to make some improvements in the spring. Is that will that hold up? He's won this tournament the last the last two years. So, you know, there for American tennis fans, this it, this this is a a decent start to the you know to the summer summer season. Yeah, and 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 as for the women, I think one thing that has happened, um, you know, with this the way the tournaments have been structured in the summer is, uh, and we'll get to this really next week, but. You often do see um, a, a very strong field that comes to Stanford, and we'll play that event. It'll, you know, Serena will be back from that. I should mention that Serena did play since Wimbledon. She played um, in Sweden, won won her first match, and then immediately withdrew. Uh, I think after a practice session before her second match. So it's she still hasn't taken a single loss besides. The one to Kvitova this year, I believe she's forty and one. Um, so she'll actually be back, you know, the following week, along with a pretty a pretty strong field. And then, you know, the momentum really picks up pretty quickly because you go right in from those events to, to Canada and to Cincinnati. And by that point, you're pretty much, uh, you know, at in New York, you know, for really the uh, the be all end all for the majors. 
Yeah, I think the women's you know the women's tour doesn't do much this week. The the men have these decent sized clay court tournaments in Europe, where the women, the, you know, there's not a lot. Elena Yankovic is in is in China, as you you know, she'll find a way to play anywhere. Um, but yeah, I think it really starts with the women in the U.S. when 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 they get started again in in August. Yeah, um, and I and I thought you know that might be because of I think really the you know, the kind of the level of tennis that we'll, we won't really get to take a lot away I don't think until the the later days of this week from these events um, but I thought I would take this time to kind of sort of remind everyone hopefully 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 not uh, tell you for the first time because we've had it on the site for a long time um, is you know this year is the 50th anniversary of tennis magazine and we've Ran. We've been. Steve really has been producing a series of 50th anniversary moments. The 50 moments that most, the best, you know, define the sport really, and it's. And I think more so, its place in um, in American culture, really sports culture for sure, and and even beyond that. But we put out one of those pieces every week on Thursday. Um, a little throwback Thursday, if you will, for you know for that tie-in and. You know, we'll keep that going through the end of the year. And you know, one thing I meant to, I wanted to mention about Serena is that the last batch of these will come in the most uh, current issue of of the magazine, which is on sale pretty shortly. Uh, we, we end this series, or you ended it, I should say, with Serena winning her 18th Grand Slam at last year's U.S. Open. And we, you know, of course, we couldn't have foreseen where she took it from there. Um, but that you know that major tied her with, at the time, Everett and Navratilova. There's a great sort of anecdote about how Chris Everett, uh, publisher of Tennis Magazine, really put a question to Serena in one of her um, one of her op-ed uh, columns in the magazine, and in a way, you know, Serena really answered the challenge that uh, you know that she put forth. And I thought that was one of you know I thought it was. Probably my favorite piece of all of them. It ended the series with a lot of finality and a good way to wrap it up. But I was just kind of wondering, you know, what your favorite really moments were that you wrote about as you were going through the history of the game. Yeah, I mean, it's been a it was quite a project to to write. Um, each one could be, each of these moments could be could have been much longer. Could be a little small book of its own. Um, when you talk about the tennis in the in, in terms of culture and sports culture over the last 50 years and the history of it. I mean, some of my favorites was, one of my favorites is the first professional, the first open tournament in Bournemouth in 1968 when amateurs, the amateurs met the pros for the first time, a men's and women's event. Um, it was, you know, the pros had to prove themselves. They'd been, they'd, they'd held themselves out as, as the best players in the world uh, for for 20 years and here they were not finally facing the amateurs and the you know the pressure was on them that was a great sort of that was a great moment i don't think anybody had any idea what it would what would it would produce eventually with the open era um another one was a look back at the the wimbledon final of 1975 with arthur ash and jimmy connors a great contrast between those two and a great a great backstory another was um um venus williams debut in Oakland, I'd I'd kind of forgotten about what a media sensation, media storm there was when she was 14, and she she won a set from the world number one 
um, you know, I think that was that was a great reminder of that. I sort of half forgotten great um, historic moment. I thought also really enjoyed looking back, which I wasn't sure I would. The Federer Nadal Wimbledon final of 2008. It seemed when I started or thought about it that it would be too current. You know, I would have remembered everything about it, and and it wouldn't be that exciting to bring back. But it but it really was. It really yeah, has, has that? I mean, has that match aged? You know, well in term. I mean, we at the time, I think it was. You know, the majority opinion. This opinion is that is, and we even put it, styled it as the best match of all time. I yeah. think a lot of people said. I, and I, I even when I read a lot of these, you're kind of it begs to kind of look at some highlights of some of the matches we talk about and. Um, I think it. Uh, I think it obviously holds holds up very well over time, for sure. Yeah, I think that match has aged well because you look at the great matches that have have happened, great men's matches that have happened since then. You look at uh, Nadal, Djokovic in Australia, uh, Djokovic, Federer at Wimbledon last year, Federer, Roddick at Wimbledon the year after. Um, I'm sure I'm leaving out a few, but they don't. I don't think anyone would say that they had what that match had as great as they were that match still I can't imagine anybody really putting it up with everything that Federer, Federer and Nadal had and even at the time maybe people might not have liked that it ended in the dark uh, especially Federer fans and but I feel like that that fact has added something to it the, the, the drama of it, it you know the fact that there was no roof and it had the rain delays that's something we'll never have again and just the whole build up between the two i had forgotten about how you know Nadal and Federer had really been they'd all been really pushing Federer at that point and Federer had always been sort of kept him off at that point at least at Wimbledon and you know and that build up to to this to that match it seemed like really a logical end to their to that part of their rivalry, um, so that was yeah. a real favorite to re- to write. Yeah, and uh, yeah, you always wonder what, uh, or I wonder right now, Ray, if that match really keeps that seal. If if say uh, you know Federer is is not broken in that last game, and that and that match ends up going to, you know, it, it had to have been pushed to another day. Um, you know where that where we how we remember that one. Yeah, and and uh, you know other things that I. In the, and like I said, we have it's right on the home page. Um, the 50th anniversary moments. We we keep the most current one up there um, for the whole year, actually. And you can you know look at the archive pretty easily to see what we've put up so far. Um, you know some of them that you know rec- that are two that that I found interesting uh, in particular. You know, so many of these so many of these moments took place a before I was even born, b before I was really watching the sport with any sort of serious eye. Um, you know, some of these that really transcend the game, like Martina Navratilova um, defecting to the U.S. and this really strange, you know, scenario of like, is she going to leave? Is she not going to? To kind of read really the inside story of that. Um, is very interesting, especially when you see in the future moments really what you know, and you obviously know what Martina, you know how she, how it all turned out for her as a as a player. Um, there's she ties into many of them. In fact, um, you know, one that we that we ended the first issue on, which I thought was a great way to end the issue, was um, 
was the 77 U.S. Open at Forest Hills um, and just kind of the really just uh, wacky, a, a lot of different reasons why that was just sort of this tournament that blew up the game in a way. And, and of course, it it was the last Open there you know, before, I think, sort of things calmed down after this, this era of the, of the 70s that you put us in there. Um, you know, two of those things I, I think are, are interesting for me, and, and I think the theme that go that stretches across this whole series, um, as, as deep as some of these go into sort of match reporting, the theme is really that the sport um, and, and its pivotal moments have really sort of mirrored uh, in a way what, the, what uh, the, the United States in particular was going through in the last 50 years. Yeah, I think that's an underrated aspect of tennis. People think of tennis now as as an elite sport, on, sort of on its own. It has its little niche, and you don't, you know, you don't find it connected to current events. and And maybe maybe it isn't as much, especially in the U.S. now, when when there are no big male U.S. players. But but I think you know we'll look back and we'll look at Serena as as somebody who who will. Who seemed to make sense as a as a star in her time, um, you know, you know, she, she sort of fit the times as well. I think, and I think it's still true. I think it was definitely true in the '60s and '70s that the tennis, you know, fit the times and and was an integral part. You know, with Billie Jean King and Arthur Ashe, it's hard to think of two a sport that's produced two people who sort of transcended their sport um, more than those two men. And, and and I think when we look back at Federer and Nadal. Murray, Andy Murray, um, and Serena. I think we'll we'll see the same thing. And I think I think tennis doesn't get enough credit for that for for being something that mirrors the the society at large. Yeah, yeah well said. And uh, like I said, the 50th anniversary moment series will have another one on Thursday and uh, throughout the uh, remaining Thursdays of the year. Please check those out. They're well worth your time. Uh, we even run the extended versions online because, like Steve said, these could, you know, these each one of these is could be very voluminous in uh, in in what there is to write about it. So, um, on that note, I'll uh, let this podcast go, and we will uh, we'll be back next week, of course, with. Uh, some results, of course, from these uh, these events we've been discussing. Look ahead to next week, Stanford and the like. So, uh, for Steve Tigner, this is Ed McGrogan at the Tennis.com podcast. You've been enjoying the Tennis.com podcast. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com.